You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. from your finest fantasy only to return to your daily nightmare is your mother about to look younger than you do does the woman of your dreams i love you in my dreams i love you still have a few doubts then it's time to take a stand Break out of your dull, humdrum life and into Brazil. You're so pleased you could make it right this way. It's about flights of fantasy and the nightmare of reality. We're all in this together. Terrorist bombings. I don't think it involves anything unsavory. Hey, trust me, Jack. And late night shopping. True love. You don't trust me? Trust you? Trust you? The man who hijacks my truck, loses me my job, has every security man in town looking for me? Of course I trust you. I was only trying to help. Yeah. And creative plumbing. There's your problem. Can you fix it? No, I can't. From Terry Gilliam, director of Time Bandits, Jonathan Price. Sam, what are we going to do with you? Robert De Niro. I came into this game for the action, the excitement. Go anywhere, travel light, get in, get out. Wherever there's trouble, a man alone. Catherine Hellman and Michael Palin. We've always been close, haven't we? Yes, Jack. But until this all blows over, just stay away from me. Brazil, it's only a state of mind. We're all in it together, kid. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Skiz Sizek. My good friends call me Harry. Also back in the booth is Mr. Jeff Myers. Hey, how's it going? We are all in it together on this, our 500th episode of the Projection Booth, and we are looking at Terry Gilliam's Brazil. The film is a Kafkaesque nightmare about Sam Lowry, played by Jonathan Price, a cog in an enormous bureaucratic world. Set in an Orwellian world of overly complicated technology and ducks, lots and lots of ducks, the film has almost as interesting a story behind the scenes as on screen. Of course, we will be spoiling the film. Do I really even need to say that anymore? Skiz, when was the first time you saw Brazil and what did you think? I saw it, uh, let's see, it was uh, in theaters a couple blocks from my college uh, when it first came out. And I was a film student and 
Uh, my fellow film students were uh, telling me about this great film, but I, I just didn't have time to go see it. I didn't have any money either. So I had to wait until that summer when it came out on VHS. And I think I actually signed up for a membership at a video store just to rent Brazil. And it blew my mind. Very quickly became one of my favorite films of all time and probably one of the films that I've seen more than any other movie. So I'm glad I'm on the show to talk about it because if I had to pick a favorite movie, which I've tried, it usually ends up being a five-way tie for first place. But Brazil is uh, probably the leader of the five. I think I've been slowly trying to make my way through your favorite film list over the years. You've done most of them, I think. <laughs> Crime Wave, American Astronaut, Liquid Sky, this one. I'm really trying, Skiz. Forbidden Zone. We did that, didn't we? Yes, we did. It was 10 years ago, I think. And Jeff, how about you? When was your first time and what did you think? I was a teenager and I saw it in the theaters. I do not recall what theater I saw it in, but I was friggin' blown away. And it hit at a time in my life when it was kind of perfect because I was consumed with reading books like um, 1984 and Brave New World and Fahrenheit 451 and Vonnegut. I was kind of going through that stage and Blade Runner had been my favorite movie from three years earlier and Monty Python was a, an addiction for me. Seeing Brazil was like everything I loved and feared about the world came together in one movie. Like Skiz, this movie has consistently been one of my favorite films of all time although it was really interesting watching it this time because i think it's been probably close to eight to ten years since i watched it last and so rewatching it with kind of new middle-aged eyes i guess <laughs> um i don't know i just had some insights i hadn't had before but it still blows me away it still seems like an almost impossible movie that it was made and made intact with its vision I think I also saw this on VHS the first time, and for whatever reason, I rented it because I was going through like a Robert De Niro kick. And if you watch Brazil just for Robert De Niro, you're going to have a bad time, to say the least. <laughs> I mean, he's great. The few times he's on screen are great, but you have to wait a long time to see him, and then a long time to see him a second time, and then a long time to see him a third time. I've just been kind of like middling on this movie, and I think one of the things is I never knew which version I saw originally, and I've never really had the faith to go back, because from what I understand, there were like five different cuts of this thing. We'll probably talk about two of them in particular, one which is the one that's just mostly available now, and then the other one is the Love Conquers All version, which was, as far as I know, the TV version of it. And there were also like little differences in the European version versus the US. And I think that there are some articles out there tracking like which lines are here versus there. But we'll mostly talk about two versions of this. And I was always afraid of accidentally stumbling upon the quote unquote wrong version of it. Yeah, that's easy to do. <laughs> <laughs> it, you know, it's funny because, you know, like I said, the first time I saw it was the VHS version, which was the American version. And I think I knew that film inside and out. And then came the uh, Criterion DVD, which has a version. It's called the Final Cut. That's sort of a cross between the American version and the European version. And it's a far superior version than the American VHS version, except there are a couple little things missing here and there that I, I'm always 
waiting to see, and then they, they're never there. Uh, but then that Criterion also has the uh, the Love Conquers All TV cut, which is such an abomination. I, you know, I know, Mike, you said you were watching it the other day, and I was like, I can't bring myself to do it. I did. I couldn't either. I refused. I refused to watch it again. For like, I saw. I saw it out of curiosity. I don't know a long time ago. I think when Criterion first put out the collection. I think actually a friend may have even shown it to me, and I was like, "This is just so bad." I I just couldn't bring myself to do it again. I broke down and watched it the other night. <laughs> I mean, the the film, you know, the the final cut version is such a masterpiece, and then this other version, oh man, it just shows you how little people at studios care. It, you know, they just want to make disposable films that make their money back right away. And you know, Brazil, I rented it on VHS. I bought it on VHS. I bought it on DVD. I've gone to see it several times at revival screenings. Like three decades now, I'm still – this film is still making money off of me. And I can't think of any other film from that time that's doing that. And, you know, had it always been the Love Conquers All version, I probably would have seen it once and never watched it again. What were some of those things that were in the U.S. VHS that you now, when you're watching the, the DVD or Blu-ray of it, where you're like, oh, that's not there? Like, what are those things that you're waiting to see? The one that comes to mind first is the – uh scene in uh, Dr. Jaffe's office where he's putting all the saran wrap over the mother's face. And he says, you know, and already she's 20 years younger. At that point, Sam in the American VHS version says, my gosh, it works. You know, which I always thought was a really funny line, but it's not in this final cut version. For me, this was more like me noticing things about the whole film that I think my youth and my enthusiasm and love for it kind of obscured and then hitting me now like i tried to watch it this time without the adoration i had for it and try to kind of experience it new and there were a couple of things that just surprised me it, like the fact that sam and jill don't hook up till two-thirds into the movie that alone was just wow i just always remembered them meeting sooner in my brain <laughs> And maybe this is because I, I become jaded and or I don't know, maybe more woke or whatever it is. But Sam as a character is so much less relatable to me now. And I started having this idea that in some ways he's like every mediocre white male who believes he's really a superhero and deserves to have the beautiful girl and that he is a quote unquote nice guy. And I kept thinking, how far is this? from like what incels believe themselves to be. And I was looking at Kale's review and she had this great line describing him calling him anonymous men with furtive sparks of nonconformity. And I was like, yes, <laughs> like I was like, would Sam wear a mask like now <laughs> or would that would be his bold nonconformist statement? And then just also, like, I had forgot that Sam is really not a hero, except in his own mind, um, which is the brilliance of the film. But then also just, I forgot how much he kind of fucks up Jill's life. <laughs> and and that, like, she's basically just a truck driver who saw her neighbor get mistakenly disappeared and wants to go through the proper channels and correct it. And this guy who's had a leg up his whole life and keeps choosing to work outside the system, ends up stalking her and creating a nightmare for her because she's the girl of his dreams. And all that stuff 
certainly I missed it when I was a teenager. Now it's just hitting very strongly home for me. As much as I love this film, there are some things that have always bothered me and that all the scenes of the two of them in the truck have always bothered me. It all seems so out of character for him and then wrong. Every time I watch it, I'm just like, she's telling you, don't touch anything. Stop touching things. <laughs> you know, like, what else does she have to tell you to get you to stop? It bugs me every time. I actually don't think it's out of character. I think it's in character. Like, I think the genius of it is he is not a hero. The movie is constructed to show that he believes he's a hero. But as you watch it, all he is is kind of a source of chaos in this poor woman's life who probably ends up getting her killed. And when I was a teenager inside, it was more I was responding to him being this rebellious force. And, and I have a whole theory about the rebellion and the terrorists anyway, but um, we can get to later. But I was really struck by what an entitled, inappropriate white male he was. <laughs> and of course, some of that's probably the movies being made in 1985, but also maybe it was intentional, you know, um, or, and even if it wasn't, that's kind of the brilliance of it. Like that, this, that he is who he is. He sees himself as this angelic figure, these dream sequences that we get through the film, which tells this kind of counter narrative to what we're seeing, or it might follow along with the narrative and recast things in his mind and his dreams. And it was funny because I was looking, there's a, a BFI book uh, by Paul McCauley uh, about Brazil. And when I looked at it from a distance, it it's a very nice uh, painting on the front of the book, and it's basically like a filing cabinet with the word Brazil on it sideways, and half the cabinet's below the earth, and half the cabinet's above. So it looks kind of like that monolith that we see popping up in the in the in the movie. And then we have little Sam Lowry with his angel wings. But the first time I looked at it, I was thinking, "Oh, that's the bug that gets in the machine." And the more I watch the movie, the more I think that Sam is more like a bug than an angel, that he's the guy who kind of gets into the machine and kind of fucks it up and causes more harm than good. He's that bug that, in in a metaphorical sense, causes Tuttle to become Buttle, which then sets off this whole chain of events, which really fucks things up. He, he fucks up, to your point, he fucks up Jill's life so much. And whether Gilliam intended it or not, he should adopt that idea. Because <laughs> 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 I think it's really, my love for the film is undiminished. But I think there is a fascinating, non-intuitive ideas going through here because we've been so conditioned to see all these stories about the little guy who rises up and defeats the system, right? And the entire message of this film is, you will never defeat the system. The system will always defeat you. And that you are not a hero, <laughs> you, you know, that you believe yourself to be. And, um, and everybody, you, I, I, you know, everybody in this world on some level thinks that they're the hero of their own story. I mean, that's the nice thing. There are no villains in this story really it's like they're all doing what they think is the right thing to do in in this world and one of the things i loved about it was this idea that like you never meet anybody above deputy minister deputy minister is as high as this movie depicts there's no mention of anybody higher than the deputy minister and that's when you realize oh there's nobody behind any of this like like the system has just managed to convince everybody to serve it 
in the worst possible way. Gilliam actually says that Spore and Dowser are the real bad guys, in his opinion. And then he says, uh, they're just bits of nastiness that float through the world. Terribly petty little people who manage to get a uniform or a title and have just enough power to inflict misery on others. He says, they deserve a shitty death. <laughs> and they get one. Well, they're, right. like, they're like the dystopian Mario and Luigi. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's very appropriate casting there with Bob Hoskins. <laughs> I think we don't say enough about Derek O'Connor because he is creepy as hell. Oh, God. And I love – apparently he just kept like cutting out lines and just decided like I'm just going to repeat what Hoskins says. And I think it works brilliantly. Central service. Central services. Oh, yes. You rang, sir. You rang, sir. Trouble with your air conditioning. Air conditioning, sir. Uh, no, it's, it's, it's uh, all right. It's, um, it's fixed. It's fixed. Fixed? Yes, um – I mean, it um, fixed itself. Oh, it fixed itself. Fixed itself. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Machines <laughs> don't fix themselves. Well, they don't fix themselves. <laughs> He's tampered with it. Yes. <laughs> He's tampered with it. Just <laughs> well, so on. sorry, you've had a wasted journey. <laughs> I think we will have a little look at you. No, you I can't. I think we should do. Yes. Uh, <laughs> have you got a twenty-seven B stroke six? Twenty-seven B stroke six. It's such a specific malignancy that he's depicting. Yeah, it's very effective. I'm very curious about the stuff that we didn't see as far as Kim Greist, because apparently Greist, 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 because apparently there was a whole lot more with her. And it sounds like Gilliam did not like her performance at all. He just kept saying she wasn't able to handle it. To your point about them not meeting until so much later in the film, I'm curious what else there would have been. I'm also very intrigued about how she and his mother switch places a few times. There are even times, like there's a moment where he imagines or pictures his mother and it is Grace playing the Helmand character. And then there are times where it sounds like it's Helmon doing her voice, like especially when she is wearing the wig and coming out on the bed. I don't think it is, but it sure sounds like Helmon's voice to me. So it's this whole weird Oedipal thing of him wanting to sleep with the woman who eventually becomes his mother. I'm really intrigued by the question, and I don't think I had this in the past when I've watched this, is when exactly does the fantasy delusion begin? Because the natural instinct is for you to say, oh, when they begin to torture him, that's when he goes into his fantasy world. Because that's when it really goes into overdrive of him imagining his, you know, big escape, spoiler alert. But there is an argument that Jill is never real in this story after the time he runs into her at the apartment building, at Buttle's apartment there is a version of this where you could believe that after that, it's all in his head on some level. Watching it again the other night, I kind of went the middle ground and I wondered if that moment when he's knocked out in the police van is when the delusion really begins and that everything after that is part of the fantasy because he's knocked out in the police van and then he wakes up. The next scene is cut to he's in his office being yelled at. 
And everything after that is him getting kind of his revenge on everyone who's tormented him in his life, or it's Tuttle getting revenge on Hoskins and, you know, on Spore and uh, Dowser. And then I was like, okay, that kind of makes more sense that the delusion starts there. But I like that you just never quite know. But there is part of me that thinks, did he fake his own death? And that's part of his attempt to absolve himself of the bureaucratic nightmare that he's created. And I like that Gilliam, in a way, is playing with the... If this is what's going on, that Gilliam himself is playing with the audience in terms of what's fantasy and what's reality. Which he seems to love to do. I mean, the we've talked about Gilliam on the show before. One of my favorites of his is 12 Monkeys. And it's just like, okay, does he really remember Madeline Stowe at the airport? Is the man with the red hair, is that David Morris? Is that Brad Pitt? You know, just the way that he plays with those things is fantastic. And I love that he's playing with that in here as well, where you're just like, did this really happen? Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? I'm not really sure what's going on here. And yeah, that he spends so much of his time in a dream world and recasting things like recasting Ian Holm as the, the, the creature in the bricks. And he was very clingy, right? <laughs> it's, it's all about him being clingy. And recasting himself as the the samurai. And I love that rhyme of samurai and Sam, you know, Sam, you are I. And then also that kind of rhymes with the here I am, J-L, or is it J-H, J-H? Because that, that also doesn't really add up. Why is it J-H? Who, do, who is J-H? Is- yeah, it's Jeremiah, and he, it, he just rearranged the letters and used it as his, his password. Because his last name is an H. Sam's father's name was Jeremiah. And Mr. Helpman just rearranged all the letters in Jeremiah to spell here I am, J-H. It just seems kind of weird because I would think it would be J-L if it was Jeremiah Lowry versus Helpman, which would be whatever Helpman's first name is with the H. I know I'm I'm reading too much into this, but it just I don't think that it works as well, but it's it's an interesting thing. And I love some of the wordplay and stuff that we have in here. I'm having fucking Stoppard write one of the drafts of this, I think it was one of the smartest things they could do. I mean, his joke about See you, Jack. Give my regards to Allison and the twins. Triplets. Triplets. God. How time flies. The story is that Gilliam wanted way, way more dream sequences in the movie. Starting about halfway into the movie, the dream sequences kind of dominate the movie. And Stoppard, in many ways, was the one who kind of pushed it away from that to actually have a plot. Because he kept saying that Gilliam was way more interested in what he could do visually than the dialogue. And then he said he felt like he he would almost have preferred there were no dialogue. And so he said that it became like he didn't like that twins triplet joke because he didn't get it. And he said, Stoppard is quoted, he said, it's hard to explain a joke to somebody who simply doesn't understand it. He said, Terry was completely bewildered by this. And also, I was completely incapable of explaining why it was a joke at all. Luckily, he seemed to have the faith to keep some of Stoppard's humor in there because the line that struck me as so Stoppard was Jack Lint's whole defense where he says, Information transit got the wrong man. I got the right man. 
the wrong man was delivered to me as the right man. I accepted him on good faith as the right man. Was I wrong? To me, that is pure stoppered. Like that, that kind of circular logic and wordplay. Thank God Gilliam at least put that in there because it so contextualizes and grounds what's going on. Because I've always felt like Gilliam is at his best when he's got reins on him, when there are people who are kind of boxing him, him to a certain extent and not letting him endlessly diddle with his ideas. I wish that we were able to see some of those other dream sequences. It seems like they got, if not having shot the eyeball sequence, that they got pretty darn close because I've seen images of them with all of the pool balls with the eyeballs on there and how they were able to move them around. I mean, it just looked fantastic. Yeah, it would be great. I wish there were like deleted scenes that were available for us to see. But yeah, the absurdism in here is is wonderful, and it just plays into just how awful this world is, this bureaucratic hell. I mean, you were talking earlier about how there's no one behind the deputies. In that way, it kind of reminds me of, of uh, 1984 quite a bit. It's like, I don't think Big Brother ever existed, and it's just has always been more of the machine that has been running things. And this movie is very much about the machine. And I find it very interesting, too, that it isn't Europa versus Oceania in this. It is the main world. We never hear about any other countries. I don't think any other countries really exist. And it's all about the terrorists inside. And here in 2020, it feels so prescient. It does. And the thing that really struck me watching it this time is... I don't believe there are any terrorists, actually. I I think the whole point is that the explosions, the random acts of destruction have more to do with government incompetence, and it's easier to blame than to fix. Because it seems like the premise is everything's broken, nobody knows why, and no one takes responsibility. Like the whole point is to hide whatever is deviates from what the system wants. There's this point where Jill says, have you ever seen a terrorist? And he says, no. And we never see a terrorist. There's just explosions. I kind of started thinking, are all the explosions other versions of Sam Lowry fucking up something? Gilliam addresses the uh, addresses the terrorists and the uh, audio commentary, director commentary on the, on the, the DVD. He populates the Brazil world with all these lurkers, and he plays one of them in the Buttles building, like he's the smoker that Sam bumps into, and that he wanted to have this idea that there's always these little spies just kind of lurking around, keeping an eye on things, and that at this point, for all anybody knows, these bombings are being done by these people who work for the government as a way to try to bring out the terrorists but at this point, nobody knows if there actually are any terrorists. Maybe there are no terrorists. And it kind of doesn't matter whether it's accidents of incompetence or it's the system creating acts of terrorists to kind of find terrorists that don't exist. That seems a one with the whole concept that this is just a bureaucracy, a system that feeds itself endlessly based on whatever the basest instincts of its citizens are. And that, to me, that's just just as brilliant. And the, the thing that I love is Gilliam even shows how far people will completely subscribe 
They'll close their eyes to tragedy and travesty and maintain an unshakable faith in the system. And the best example of that is Mrs. Terrain. Every horrifying surgery setback for her doesn't dissuade her from the idea that she should continue to get more treatments <laughs> to the point where she's reduced to a coffin full of disintegrated body parts. Like she is, her faith is so unshakable that it will all turn out well that she literally is melted as a human being. And I think she is kind of a metaphor for everyone in, in terms of kind of embracing the system. Um, and this idea that hiding the incompetence is more important than fixing the incompetence, which I think we're well acquainted with now in our own government. I mean, we have an entire leader who that seems to be his mantra demonstrated even by the the computer screens, which are nobody builds a bigger screen. They just build a magnifying glass screen to put in front of your screen so that you can actually see it. Because if you made it bigger, you would have to admit there was something wrong with the one you made. That's kind of the mantra of the whole film and this world or the, the world that this film takes place in. You could also look at the terrorists or, or the concept of there being terrorists as a, the excuse to create an entire industry of security workers because there's so many security workers in this movie. Although it's, it's interesting. Homeland security workers. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting how much security is in the uh, ministry of information. And then there's no security, you know, at, at, at the other, the other building he goes to work in. Yeah. Information retrieval, right? We, right. Yes. we don't need anybody here. We know everything. For every person that they arrest, probably wrongly, there is so much paperwork that gets generated. The whole idea of here's your receipt and here's my receipt for your receipt and just how much paperwork gets generated for each time they do one of these arrests. I love these bags that they put people in, these kind of like altered mail bags and just – to, to see like the rows upon rows of these people that you know are going to be sent to somebody like Jack Lint to get tortured, to have basically incomplete information, no information at all, because they haven't done anything wrong. One of the reasons this movie is so prescient is we can see vestiges of this all through our own society, whether it was the torture arguments that went on during the Bush administration where no actual information is being gained by people being tortured, or right now a government that in Florida, DeSantis hiding COVID numbers and sending armed police forces into the house of a, a researcher because she, you know, like, I'm like these, this is literally Terry Gilliam's Brazil, you know, writ small. I'm kind of blown away. And the thing that kept driving me crazy when I was researching, you know, kind of reading up uh, more about the movie is how many reviews and how many articles called this a science fiction or that it was futuristic. And I was like, okay, so first of all, there's nothing futuristic in this movie, like nothing. Everything in the movie is at best present day. And most of it is technology that's long past that they're clinging to. If their belief is that it's, there's a future there. I guess the only thing that's future is that air conditioning, um, like because which to me, like it seems like without it, you you suffer. Which made me think, okay, global warming. I don't know. I didn't see anything that's futuristic about it. And then 
it's really just fascism by bureaucracy. And Flato says in the beginning, somewhere in the 20th century. So he's he's clearly commenting on today. He's not projecting into the future. He says in the uh, in the commentary also that like people have told him that the film was ahead of its time in subject matter, and he's like, no, everything in the film was happening at that time and had been. It's just people weren't paying attention. So, you know, if a lot of it seems familiar now, it's just because we're paying more attention to it. The whole idea of the bombs going off. I mean, he was working on this while IRA bombings were happening in London all the time, and he already saw people that were inured to it. And it's just like, hey, this is kind of a big deal. You know, the the movie starts off with that bombing at the television shop and just continues on from there. And terrorist bombings were not new. They just come out of the 70s with the Palestinian-Israeli conflicts. I'm doing a rewatch of Bernie Miller right now and having to look up about things about mad bombers in New York City in the 1970s, too. So it wasn't just, you know, it was it was everywhere that these things were happening. This area must be evacuated now was the repeat announcement coming from a vehicle on the street. I think people were really struck by the production design, and that's why they started to kind of latch on to this idea that it was sci-fi or futuristic, which I don't think it's either. But I did look at it and think, man, is Gilliam kind of responsible for the look of steampunk today? Because the way that Blade Runner kind of defined cyberpunk, it feels like the whole vision of ducks and archaic machines being used in a modern way is very much the steampunk sensibility now and didn't seem so much like I was trying to kind of backtrack in my mind before 85. I don't think there really was that kind of vision of steampunk aesthetic. Certainly never heard the term back then either. No, I know that that same book I was talking about, the BFI book, he brings up steampunk. And luckily, the author of that is a sci-fi author. So he was like, oh, yeah, there were instances of this in literature and was able to point to those. But as far as like movies and TV, this definitely was groundbreaking as far as steampunk aesthetic. It's very interesting to me that those two movies, Blade Runner and Brazil, are so close together and are so defining of a look, of an aesthetic sensibility that started to infiltrate so many other films. I mean, there was something definitely in the water back then. I'm really impressed with this world that he so completely commits himself to and that we kind of just, no matter how ridiculous it gets and how um, absurd it gets, you buy it because Gilliam has clearly envisioned it in totality and how it all doesn't work together, so to speak. I don't know how many times I've watched the film and I and I know like, you know, the first fifteen years I watched it, it was on a four three aspect ratio VHS, so it wasn't the greatest quality. And then moving up to, you know, the DVD and the revival screenings Every time I see it, I still see details that I've never noticed before. And I'm amazed that I'm still finding them after, you know, 30 some years of loving this film. And I mean, just uh, my most recent viewing this past week, I never noticed that the Ministry of Information rubber stamp is on everything in Kurtzman's office. You know, it's a, it's on the teapot. It's on the mug. It's on the fishbowl. <laughs> like it's everywhere. I'd never noticed it, but this is the first time I've noticed that. But, you know, there's other things that, that I see that I, I remember the time that I, I noticed that for the first time, like the, uh, 
one-legged pregnant woman being the only person standing on the public transport. Like for, I saw it, I don't know how many times before I even noticed because it's kind of a dark scene. But, you know, once I noticed it, it jumps out at me every time. I didn't notice some of the set decoration until I was watching some behind-the-scenes footage. And they were talking about the use of the glass blocks and just how glass blocks are so prevalent. And then even they're kind of echoed in that public transport uh, scene that you're talking about, Skiz. The the door that he tries to get through, it's not glass blocks, but it has that same exact pattern to it. And it's just this whole idea of, like, you're in a prison – but you can see out. So it's like you don't feel maybe that you're in a prison. I agree with Skiz. Every time you watch it, I find new things in it. Substantial new things. Not like, oh, that little detail. It's the thing that made me start questioning was Jill ever real? Was the scene in the department store where he's followed her and he gets into a fight with her. And then if you look, she's on the other side of a mirror the mirror image of we only see Sam and his mirror image. So it looks like he's fighting himself. It's just, like I said, Oh my God, this is like fight club, which made me go, is Jill just like his Tyler Durden? <laughs> is it like, like, did she ever exist? Because he's having this whole conversation with Miss terrain where it looks like he's fighting himself. <laughs> The first thing we see is her in the bathtub with that reflection of the Marx Brothers in the mirror. So we immediately have mirrors in associated with her. When we see her inside of the Buttle apartment, he looks down, and it, it looks to him like he's looking down, but he sees her reflection in the mirror between his legs. So yeah, you're right. There's so many mirror images of Jill, and the whole idea of her suddenly finding this wig that he has seen her wearing this long hair in his fantasies, but then when he comes in, she suddenly has it on. It's just like, wow, that is really strange. And, you know, even when it comes to, like, the forces of darkness, the creatures with these doll, baby doll faces, we see that same baby doll in Jacqueline's office. And, you know, it's like, did he just pick that up from there? Is he crafting so much of this? Is he crafting more of these dreams than we're giving him credit for? Are more of these things dreams? Or is the whole movie a dream? Like, is the whole thing in his head because he's been tortured? You know, do we read into the fact that there's a Jack and a Jill and that they represent different aspects? Like, Jill is, in Sam's mind, the rebel that he never was who seeks just, who's, you know, tries to seek justice for something's wrong. And Jack is the person who absolutely complies with the system and benefits from it and has all the trappings of the things you would want, like a family and children and wealth. And But he's so compliant that when someone above, when his boss says his wife's name wrong, and so he just starts calling his own wife by the wrong name, because that's how compliant he is with the system. And yet he takes no responsibility ever for, you know, the people he kills. <laughs> I, I just started thinking, oh, well, you know, does this go back to the Jack and Jill rhyme where they went up the hill? And, but they just basically both end up falling down the hill. <laughs> you know, I, I, so it just made me think, how much of this is a fantasy? Is the whole movie a fantasy in, in Sam's head? And I mean, the fact that you can come to several answers. I hope Terry Gilliam never actually tells you because that's what's brilliant about the film, right? Like you, we, we each get to read into it the way we want. 
he does kind of tell you in that audio commentary. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a shame. <laughs> or he, I mean, he mentions basically what I had thought all the time, which is that the, the fantasy starts at the torture scene and it comes back the very end of the movie. You realize, oh, he just imagined this whole last half hour of the film. <laughs> so if that's the case, then that's very problematic for me. If the idea is that the fantasy only starts at the beginning of the torture scene, then the character of Jill makes no sense because she totally capitulates to Sam for reasons that make also no sense. I mean, she just falls in love with him because he stalked her really hard. (laughs) That part just doesn't work for me. I have trouble with with their relationship and, and only watching it this past week, you know, I always tried to figure out like, what, what's the turning point? Like she so has no interest in him whatsoever. And then suddenly does. And I realized that the, the turning point is him writing, I love you on the windshield. And I'm thinking, well, maybe that's the first time anybody has said that to her. And that, you know, cause that's what causes her to like jam on the brakes and that's then be relieved that he's not dead. Yeah. I, I, I don't say it works, but <laughs> That's my theory. (laughs) For me, it's when there is the terrorist bombing in the department store and he actually starts to help out people rather than being so concerned about himself, which he is through 99% of this movie, that he actually stops and tries to help somebody. But only at her instigation. True. True. Like she says, help them. And then he does. And so like he is so selfish. Right. He's pure selfishness. It's a shame that Gilliam says that because it kind of takes the movie down a notch, in my opinion. Like, the ambiguity is what I think is appealing. Otherwise, I have to accept that he's just another 80s male who can't write a female character and thinks that women should just fall in love with whatever hero is presented to them, or quote-unquote hero, which I think is lame. And who knows, maybe the other footage somehow fleshed her out and made some of it believable, but it's certainly not believable in the footage that ended up in the film. Yeah, I was going to say there's a lot more of her character in the Love Conquers All version, but I can't say that knowing it exists and having now seen it that I wish any of it were in the better version. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, something else that kind of leads to the idea of more of this being a dream is just the refrain of the Brazil song. And that Air I Am J.H., when he pushes those buttons in the elevator, that's the Brazil song. He's been humming the Brazil song. I think even Ian Holm is humming the Brazil song. It's like this earworm that goes through the entire movie. And this will be probably the first time that we've talked about a movie with a Michael Kamen score where I haven't picked on Michael Kamen because I think his score in this film is actually brilliant. And I love the way that he integrates the Brazil song into what he's doing, which is ironic because apparently he didn't want to do that. He hated the song and then finally was convinced to to use that as our, our main motif going through here but he came to love it like it was really interesting to see the interviews with him also that he was struck by gilliam's charge to him which was can you make music funny i thought that was really fascinating this idea that could he imbue the music with a sense of humor and how would he do that and then also just finding the rhythm with the typewriters and 
and I'm not as hard on Cayman as I've heard you be in other podcasts. I mean, uh, yes, yeah, sometimes he can be a little sappy, but I, I kind of I like his romantic spirit and some of his soundtracks. And this is very different for him, except when he cuts loose, you know, in those supposed romantic moments where uh, the soundtrack practically overwhelms the speakers with um, intensity. The one gag where Sam is riding in the, the little car and the Brazil song is playing on the radio and the broadcast is interrupted by a report about a terrorist bombing and he reaches over and he changes the station and the other station is playing the exact same song <laughs> in the exact same place. Uh-huh. It's, like, it's the only song on the radio. Which is very like Soviet Union, right? Like there's one there's one channel and whatever's on it. And if you turn what's the old Yakov Smirnov channel, it's like channel one is is the USR the state communist channel. Channel two is a KGB agent telling you to turn back to channel one. The only funny Yakov Smirnov joke, by the way. <laughs> In my country, radio channel changes you. Even thinking about some of the other, the visual motifs here of like the angel statue in the lobby is the truth shall make you free, which is one of the most ironic things that you can put on that statue. Again, like he's probably picking up that as far as the idea of him being this angel. You know, he feels like he's this angel of truth and the the way that he you know, carries on and fights against the forces of evil in his dreams. And it's just, uh, it's interesting to see how those dreams move. And like, if you were to take all the dreams and just cut all those together and see that narrative, it's, uh, I think that would be kind of a fascinating cut to see just where that is. And I would be, again, I'm curious about some of the other dreams, because I think there were at least, to your point earlier about uh, Stoppard, there were at least three more major dream sections, the Eyeball one and two others that he planned on. And I'm curious how those would have fleshed out even that like counter-narrative to, to the rest of the film. I also am very happy that in one of the one or two of the sequences that Jill's in a cage and just thinking about how Gilliam loves to put characters in cages. You know, I just rewatched Time Bandits today and I was just like, oh yeah, there's the whole series of cages. And I was thinking about 12 Monkeys and the first time we see Bruce Willis, he's in a, in a jail cell. I was just like, oh yeah, he really does like his cages and he loves his plastic clothing too i think the cages is just visually gives you a a lot of texture and a lot of ways to play with light and he's a visualist that's what excites him so i was i'm not going to say who or what their position was but i knew someone who were or i met someone who worked with gilliam on one of his films and he would talk about how when he went to work for gilliam or with Gilliam, that he was incredibly excited because he loved his films. And then he said working with him (laughs) was the most despairing experience of his film career because he said that he often doesn't know what he wants. He will do a bunch of takes and people, he, he said, I'd listen to the DP say, okay, are we good? And Gilliam will go, I don't know. Let's just go. He said he would hear that every day, and he said it was very demoralizing. And then there'd be points where he'd just kind of disappear into the costume room or disappear into the prop room and kind of fiddle with those where people are kind of waiting for him to tell them what he what he wants. 
And I think his creative process is such that he's so visually based that if he can't kind of see the visual in his head, he he gets, I don't know, my impression is that he gets a bit lost. And that's hard to translate, you know, for a cast, obviously, because they just have to take it on faith that whatever they're doing is going to fit in this thing that is in his head. And so when I start looking at his highly composed images, I'm like, you can see his excitement is palpable. Like it's almost like the characters are part of his visual interpretation. And when they just start talking too much, he's kind of not all that interested. (laughs) Then he'll just kind of give it a crazy canted angle and, and then let it play out. To your point from earlier, I would have loved to have seen this on the big screen because of all of those rich details, because the production design is amazing. Every time I watch it, I notice new things, new posters. I love all the propaganda posters. I actually wrote down a bunch of them. <laughs> My favorite maybe loose talk is noose talk. It wasn't until I saw it on the big screen, finally, you know, decades after having watching it on home video, that I noticed the uh, the tray in the torture room that has the pacifier and the super ball. (laughs) (laughs) And I love that you don't know whether those are torture devices or just stuff his daughter left on the tray. Like it could be either (laughs) suspicion breeds confidence. I love that. (laughs) Don't suspect a friend report him consumers for Christ. We're marching through the, whatever that little town square was or the, you know, the little plaza. I am curious, and I'd be interested to hear what you think, why Christmas? Why Christmas is everywhere? Like, I was like, oh, I forgot that this is set during Christmas, and everybody's getting those executive decision gifts. I like to think that it's always Christmas there. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I don't know why, but it just seems like, I mean, I guess because I've seen the film so many times, I can't picture that world when it's not Christmas time. You know, that I just like to think, well, it's always Christmas time there. And maybe that's like the one really nice thing that they all have. But they're even saying, come on, like when you see the security guards singing, come all ye faithful, <laughs> like, and like that, that song is basically saying comply. <laughs> it's like the Christmas version of comply. Like all you who believe you can come along with us <laughs> or all of you become faithful. Which is amazing to me that he like found the bureaucracy in a Christmas Carol, <laughs> <laughs> or the authoritarian angle in a Christmas Carol. I'm trying to remember if Twelve Monkeys is set during Christmas as well, because it, I know it's definitely cold because people are wearing like heavier coats and stuff. But I can't remember when it's supposed to be set. Is he secretly Shane Black? Yeah, I, I'm not sure why Christmas again. It could just be the imagery, and then if we believe that more of this stuff is in a dream world than even Gilliam is admitting, having this set at Christmas also makes it a little bit more terrifying that this stuff is happening. We're we're looking for a messiah. We're not getting a messiah. Maybe Sam thinks he's the messiah. The image of his boss as Father Christmas is super terrifying. (laughs) So, (laughs) And, you know, that's right there near the beginning of that torture sequence as well for me. I mean, the only way that that Christmas really plays into it is the gift, you know, that the executive gift that like everybody gets the same box, and Jack even has like a whole row of them on his desk, and he acts like he's picking one, a specific one out for Sam, <laughs> but they're all the same. And Sam ends up giving his to the uh, 
the uh, the doorman guy at, at the office building who's then playing with it later on. I mean, that's really – I can't think of how else Christmas actually plays into it except for, I guess, Mrs. Buttle reading uh, Christmas Carol to the daughter at the very beginning. I love that also that the gift is the executive decision maker and that it's basically a random yes or no. Like you drop it and it either says yes or no, which is a comment kind of like on the whole system. His boss in that department is telling him that like we're a, a team of decision makers, but – the whole time, people are shoving papers in his face and he's saying, yes, no, yes, no. It's like nobody is making a decision except for the boss. I'm not sure what, what Sam's job is actually supposed to be in that department. I love the detail that he and uh, Harvey Lime used to be – it used to be one room, but then you can see how it was bisected and that it even bisects their desk. <laughs> It's so great. And the file cabinet. And the file cabinet. <laughs> and aside from that being very Chaplin-esque, which is brilliant, it's also a great metaphor for this idea of capitalism, which constantly is infiltrating this movie. Like, there, it's clearly an attack on how capitalism and bureaucracy work together. And But that whole idea that capitalism makes you fight over the most ridiculous scraps. And in this case, it's how much of a desk you get. Like they're literally in a tug of war over who gets how much of that desk. And also we should point out that the Harvey Lime character is played by Charles McEwen, who co-wrote the script with him. But it's a brilliant bit of um, physical comedy and metaphorical comedy. Do you think his name is a reference to the third man? Oh, yeah. I so do. Yeah. When he is saying, oh, I'm kind of a whiz at the computer, and it looks like his computer has, like, ages of dust, and he can't even figure out how to turn it on or anything. <laughs> and he's hitting it one key at a time. And right. <laughs> he's a real whiz. <laughs> I had never really realized how much McEwen had been in so many of the movies that I loved over the years. He just kind of comes in and out and um, just play these little roles. Like I was, like I said earlier, I was rewatching Time Bandits, and as soon as he showed up as the uh, theater manager, I was like, "Oh, okay, that, that, there's Harvey Lime again. That's interesting." And then <laughs> I just rewatched The Missionary as well, and. Sure enough, he's in that, too. And he plays, what, like four or five roles in Life of Brian? We haven't really talked about how much Gilliam keeps referring to capitalism there. Like, even when down to when they're about to torture Sam and he says, you know, the the, the guard says, confess quick, make, make it easier, save your credit rating, basically. And, like, the little girl asking Santa Claus for a credit card and... I don't know if you caught that. Like, it just goes by so quick where you see. At first I thought, oh, is he just sticking it on? I was like, no, no, it's here. Like, people never think of capitalism and bureaucracy going together. They think capitalism somehow frees us of governmental bureaucracy. That's basically everyone who thinks socialism is an F word imagines that bureaucracy only comes from the government and not from capitalist enterprise. And I love how this movie is basically sticking, give it, flipping the bird to that idea. I didn't realize until I was reading more about this, that a lot of his idea for the movie was this idea of, I think it was from South American torturers who will charge people. Like he was saying like, well, yeah, for every fingernail they pull out, that's an, another dollar or whatever for every tooth that they extract. That's another $10. So like you're being charged. You, you or your family are going to be charged 
by the people that are doing the torturing. And so that level of capitalism is what he's playing on so much in this. And yet, ironically, this movie in the 90s became a rallying cry for uh, 90s right-wing extremists. Timothy McVeigh used to go by the name Tim Tuttle when he was, like, buying things. And there was an Idaho militiaman. uh, He was a spokesman for the Idaho militia, and he would call himself Bill Tuttle. And Harry Tuttle became emblematic for these right-wing, anti-tax, anti-government individuals, you know, um, because they associated the U.S. government as being akin to the authoritarian bureaucracy of Brazil, which is just shows how ingrained it is in our culture that to interpret the government is that way, but not business. I kept thinking that it was a reference to the uh, episode of MASH where they make up Jonathan Tuttle, who uh, gives all of his pay to the orphanage. And everybody keeps saying that they've seen Captain Tuttle, but he never actually existed in the first place. We can all be comforted by the thought that he's not really gone. That there's a little Tuttle left in all of us. In fact, you might say that all of us together made up Tuttle. All these right-wing extremists think they're Robert De Niro from Taxi Driver, rather than Clink from Hogan's and Heroes, <laughs> or Schultz. They're all Schultz, but they all think they're Harry Tuttle. I originally was watching this for that Harry Tuttle character, and when he shows up, it's fantastic. And I thought that De Niro did a great job with the role. Just like the little things that he does with like those glasses that he's wearing, and the, how he's also aping the whole, we're all in this together, which is also one of those propaganda posters. It's yeah. a, a kind of a play on that. I can't remember who did the actual billboard, but there's that famous Margaret Burke White photo of all of the black people in front of the the sign where it's all the white people that are in the car and they're all super happy and the black people are like in a, a bread line or something. But yeah, they took that image and put happiness. We're all in this together. And that's what Tuttle keeps saying to Harry and this whole like, you're a good man in a tight in a tight corner, you know, just like he almost seems like a dream character too because he just keeps like <laughs> saying how great uh, Sam is and you know, Sam's done barely anything. Right. He let him fix his air conditioning. So he's a true rebel. And that's what I mean. Like, Sam is so not a hero in any way. And everybody keeps saying he's a hero. And so that's where I go, okay, this it's got to be all in his head. And I don't care if Gilliam tells me otherwise. <laughs> I love that, that Tuttle's uh, toolbox is basically a surgical kit. I really like the effect of him jumping on that wire and taking off. It took me a long time to realize that that's a miniature. I know. Yeah, it's amazing. It also took me a little while to realize that it was him being eaten by the paperwork towards the end. And I love that effect, too, the way that they shot it all backwards. And you can see the people who are backwards acting around him. Really super smart to do it that way. Before watching it, I I was reminded that Gilliam wanted to call this 1984 and a half, which I think is a very funny title. But that made me think of eight and a half. And I started thinking, oh, this does feel kind of like Fellini's Eight and a Half, like which, which it, you know, has got this whole idea of what's real, what's not real. It's about a director making a science fiction epic, <laughs> and I just, I, I started going, oh, this really does feel like a Fellini version of 1984. 
you know, he says on the commentary, I, I can't remember which scene it is, but he says this, this was my Fellini scene. And I, I can't think of which scene it was, but he also points out other things like the, uh, you know, he pays tribute to the, the Odessa steps. Oh, right. The right. scene, which, yeah, I was always wondering. I, it's funny how many times I've seen the film and I just thought that was coincidence, but finally having listened to the commentary track and he actually admits to it, I'm like, okay, I wasn't imagining that. Yeah, I know as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, it looks a little Odessa Steps here. Okay, this is good. And yeah, knowing that he's such a film fan, I was like, okay, he's probably doing this on purpose. Yeah, the whole idea of Master Antonio kind of floating up uh, above the traffic and stuff at the beginning, that seems very Sam Lowry-esque to me as well. As a visual stylist, it's like Gilliam has this brilliant, it's like he's taken all these influences, thrown them in a blender, and... And then they come out in such provocative and beautiful and coherent ways. And thank God he has, you know, some good writers reining in the story so that it's there. Because you see with this later work where writers have a lot less influence, the movies are just not as coherent and sometimes hit low points like Tideland. Which is a shame because when he's allowed to kind of thrive in this visual, almost comedic, lyrical sense, it's just I, I, I feel like there's nobody as good as him in that sense. I'm really glad to hear you say that about Tideland because I couldn't wait to see that. And I saw I went to the premiere of it at the Toronto International Film Festival and wasn't really liking it. And it seems like it took years before anybody I knew got to see it. And I had this suspicion, and they, they all seemed to love it, and I had this suspicion that maybe they didn't see the same version I saw. And I've always wanted to rewatch it since, but I've never had an opportunity to see it again. I'm kind of hoping that whatever version eventually got released was better than the version I saw. <laughs> I don't know what version I saw, but I was really – visually, It there's some really cool stuff in it, but the movie's a mess, and it's just – if anyone was primed to like it, I mean, it had Jeff Bridges, who I love as an actor, and it had Gilliam. I think what was what did he do right before that? Was it Fear and Loathing? Um, it was Brothers Grimm. Yeah. Oh, oh. Well, I don't I don't blame him for Brothers Grimm. <laughs> he, I feel like he made the best of a horrible situation. It was a real letdown to me. It was like, oh, if this is you unchained from. Weinstein, I don't see an improvement, <laughs> except visually, you know, like this is a mess. This just doesn't work. Um, whereas, you know, on a movie like Fisher King and 12 Monkeys, where he was highly reined in, you know, along with Brazil, I feel like those are his three strongest films. It's because he there's a rigorousness to the storytelling that matches the rigorousness of his imagination. I was trying to think earlier if if. Gilliam had ever made a movie I didn't like. And then I, I remembered that, yeah, well, I didn't love Tideland. I didn't hate it, but I it, I was a little disappointed. And then I finally saw Brothers Grimm and I'm like, yeah, I think that's one I probably will never rewatch. <laughs> Dr. Parnassus and Zero Theorem are okay, but I don't love them. I saw each of them once, you know, during their theatrical runs. And then the the man who killed Don Quixote, I only saw the first half, so I never got to see how it resolves. But I kind of remember feeling by the first half, 
that it was a whole lot of the same thing and I, I didn't really care anymore how it resolved. But I, I still don't want, I don't want to make up my mind on that one until I actually see it all the way through. I found it interesting that he said that he had never actually seen or read 1984 and like Stoppard said that as well. And I was just like, really? That doesn't seem possible. And I understand that just being a person in our society, you probably know, or some people probably know a lot about 1984. So it probably just kind of seeped in there. It was funny reading uh, Michael Palin's diaries and he went to see the Radford version and he was kind of writing in his diaries like, Oh my God, we are sunk. There are just so many things that are similar to, to Brazil. <laughs> I was like, Oh wow. Yeah. But you know, he, he kind of takes it and does his own thing to it. I, it was nice that there was the quote unquote proper version of 1984, 1984, and then this one in 1985. So there was enough time between the two. And then looking at the two of them side by side, you know, there are some similarities, but to see how Winston Smith thinks of himself versus how Sam Lowry thinks of himself, how the Jill character is versus the, and I can't remember the character's name in, in 1984 and their relationship, the whole idea of them being tortured by somebody who is allegedly a friend. There are these parallels, but Brazil is cut from such a different cloth. So much of the time, I would say the vast majority of Americans have a sense of what 1984 is, through osmosis, but never read the book. You know, this idea of the little guy standing up, or, you know, trying to stand up to the system and being crushed by it, and how we know enough about Stalinist Russia and how it employed a lot of these ideas. And we see these things echoed in just about every piece of sci fi that we watch post 1984. I, it doesn't seem impossible to me that Terry Gilliam had never read it or seen it like that. That just rings true. I mean, it has something to do with buying an Apple computer, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, we're going to go ahead and take a break and we're going to play an interview with Michael Palin. This is the second part of an interview. And the first part you can hear sometime in the distant future of 2021 when we do a month dedicated to science fiction, which includes an episode on Time Bandits. So figure that one out. And we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. This is an American Red Cross blood donation alert. We are currently facing a severe blood shortage during this coronavirus outbreak. Healthy blood and platelet donors are asked to make an appointment to give now. Donating blood is safe and can help save lives. Cancer patients, accident victims, and so many others continue to need life-saving transfusions. So please schedule your appointment now by visiting redcrossblood.org or calling 1-800-RED-CROSS. You can make a difference. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, 
or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, The Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. You talked about John Cleese being the most recognizable python, and I've been reading some of your diaries lately, and that running... I don't know if we'll call it a gag, but that that thread in your life where people mistook you for Eric Idle, that must have been so frustrating. <laughs> yes. Well, that's all right. You know, <laughs> I think it was frustrating for Eric as well. Uh, you know, we, we, we sort of, well, we know who we are. We know the parts we play. We, we, we can't believe anyone would make a mistake like that. But... You're just part of the Pythons, and and uh, yeah, I was mistaken for Terry Jones a lot when Terry and I first started writing together. People would say, "Oh, it's a Palin and Jones script." Here they are now. Which one's Palin? Which one's Jones? You know, people don't have time. They just they just look at what you're producing rather than um, exactly who you are. But uh, being mistaken for Eric is one of those things that's given us Eric and myself quite a lot of pleasure. And the great classic one was in um, when I was doing my Himalaya series when I was climbing the Annapurna Trail and I got bad altitude sickness and was feeling unwell and had to climb up some steep steps, stone steps. And at the top, there were a couple of tourists who'd obviously nudged each other and pointed down. I thought, oh, God, you know, I've been recognized when I feel as, as bad as I've ever felt in my life. But I did try and go past them as sort of um, insouciantly as possible. There was a sort of slightly showbiz swagger. And as I went by, I heard one say to the other, Oh, my God, it's Eric Idle. (laughs) 
So there you are. You, it, it pursues us. We are similar. I wouldn't say we're particularly similar in looks at all. I just saw an interview with uh, Mr. Idol recently where he was saying that he considers himself to be more of a writer than an actor. He just has to have been has to have played these parts over the years. And I'm curious about you. What do you do you feel more like an actor than a writer or a writer than an actor because you do both brilliantly. I see it as both really, but like Eric and I've got a feeling all the pythons we really respected the writing. And the, the, you know, the feeling that nothing existed until it was written down and writing well and writing a good script and writing good lines and producing something that was fresh and original was, was primarily a writing task. And we would then go on and, and, and do the acting. A lot of people, I think, felt that Python was... You know, well, partly they, they, they thought we were all on drugs, but it was just something we all, hey, we all got together and the, uh, turned the camera and uh, we, we, we just mucked around. In fact, it was very, very carefully worked out. And on all the films, we had the script very, very carefully refined by the time we got to the filming because we knew that it also had to look good so everybody involved in making it look good whether it be wardrobe or, or, or makeup and particularly camera sound and lighting had to know where we were going to be at any one time so we took the we did take the writing aside very seriously and uh, that that's where all you know the good ideas of python came from some some good writing. I think with Eric, he Eric was a, was, a, was a brilliant writer of lyrics and music and all that. Something which I was I was less good at. I was think I think I was able to play um, a range of different characters, and I enjoyed playing lots of different characters. That gave me great pleasure. But writing was always the the main thing I wanted to do well. How was it determined who would play what roles? Were you acting out more of what you had written, or would somebody say, hey, I would like you to play this role? It was generally generally accepted that if the writer had written a particular character, a particular funny character, then they got first dib at that character when it came to the casting. It didn't always work because... You know, you needed also to spread the casting around and the parts around. But the general rule was that if there was a really strong, strange, weird and wonderful character, the person who created it was probably the best person to play it, which was a great strength of Python, really, because Eric may may have thought himself as a writer first and actor second, but everyone could act really well. Um, Everyone could bring a character to life. But it was, again, respect for the writer. If you've written a really good thing yourself, something really strong, something that's quite complex, um, let's see it. You have a go first. It didn't always um, didn't always follow, but general rule of thumb, that was where we started with the casting, yes. And how did you get cast as Jack Lint in Brazil? Well, that was Gilliam's idea. Gilliam was very nice because we'd done Jabberwock and we'd done a Time Bandits together. I think Terry you know, felt he wanted me to be in Brazil, but I was doing various other things. We weren't quite sure what sort of character. Um, and he said, well, I've got this really the best friend of, of um, Jonathan character. 
is a really nasty man who's very unpleasant, turns out to be a torturer, but is immensely charming and, um, you know, has children and looks after them. And it's just generally one of these people who seem to be completely normal and nice. And he said, wouldn't it be great for you to be, do your normal nice thing, but to be a real bastard? And I said, yeah, that's great. <laughs> I'd never really done anything like that. So that's how it came about. Terry was extremely loyal to me over that because Robert De Niro was keen to be in the film. Terry asked him, said, look, any, 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 any character you want. And De Niro said, I, I really like Jack Lint. I can play him really well. And Terry, to his great credit, said, I'm sorry, my friend Mike's doing that. You have to find something else. <laughs> <laughs> so De Niro ended up as the, uh, as the plumber. <laughs> and uh, I ended up as the baddie and enjoyed it. From what I understand, you shot the scene with Jonathan Price where it's in your office. You actually had to shoot that twice because it wasn't working the first yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was a crucial scene, as you know. It's sort of towards the middle of the film. And because of, I don't know, the way these things do, studio availability, um, casting availability or whatever... Terry decided to do it on the first day. We hadn't really established how any of us were going to sort of play the characters. It was first day for Jonathan, first day for me. I don't know. I think I wasn't particularly relaxed. The scene didn't play particularly well. It was okay, but it was awkward. And, and the whole, uh, it was the sort of first first day or a couple of days that the crew had worked together. So an enormous number of things and relationships and uh, working, working sort of arrangements to be, to be worked out. People had to get to know each other and have confidence in each other and knew what, know what each other could do. So it was just, it was all played too early on. And I, I think I thought, well, we've got away with it. But Terry later called me and said, I think it would be great if we can do this again. And I said, yeah, I didn't feel very comfortable doing it. And now, you know, he knew much more about the the story, John, how Jonathan was going to play his character. So he said, and the other thing is, he said, I think we've got to make you more sort of create the, the environment in your office, make it just even more sort of schmaltzy and Christmassy and loving and sentimental. So we're going to have, we're going to have your family and we're going to have, have your daughter there. And he said, uh, Holly, his daughter, <laughs> who currently manages the Pythons, um, was brought in to play my daughter. So there we are. So I was um, playing with her there and greater emphasis on the presence and all that. And, you know, less on my shiftiness and more on my good, loving family man um, um, sort of appearance. That that was what that was how we did it, and and it made it, it it gave me much more to play with. If you can remember, the scene was kind of a lot of the scenes with Jonathan. I was kind of one corner of the room looking around at him, and it brought me into the room and and say gave me a sort of bit of working space so I could be a bit more elaborate the character a bit more and and play up his sort of his decency while everybody knew he's a complete bastard. When the camera cuts and we see that she's in the same room with you, it's just like, wow, okay, this really paints things in a whole different way. Yes, yeah, exactly. 
yeah, yeah. Well, I've been watching the film Brazil, but I've also been watching your series on Brazil, and I'm very curious how you got into this other phase of your career where you uh, would take people around the world with these uh, amazing travel shows. Well, it came rather out of the blue. Um, it was 1986, and I just shot a fish called Wanda, and that was all being put together. There was really nothing around. Uh, I didn't know what, what I was going to do next. I had an idea for a film, which I, I wrote myself, eventually became something called American Friends, but it seemed a long way off at the time. And quite out of the blue, someone at the BBC said, they've got this idea of doing a journey um, literally around the world in 80 days, um, following the Jules Verne story and seeing if we can do it in real time, using no no form of transport that uh, wouldn't have been around in Jules Verne's time. So it was always on the land, of course. And, yeah, it was a great idea, and I always loved traveling and all that, and it was going to be a chance to go around the world and be paid for it. So I said, yeah, I'll do it. And that was a surprising success, I think, really. It was it was very, very, got very good ratings in the UK. And then they, the BBC said, well, well, you know, what can we do now? Is there a, <laughs> is there another Jules Verne story? And uh, there's 40,000 leagues beneath the sea, but I didn't really want to stay underwater for that long. So I said, I love traveling. Can we just go and, and uh, apply the same kind of travel techniques that we learned on Around the World in 80 Days to another journey? And we decided to go, having been sort of virtually around the equator, to go north-south. And that was pole to pole. And that was enormously successful again. And then we did full circle. And they were they were really they were really a very successful series, so that they had a momentum of their own. And I loved doing them. Um they were hard work, but but for for a geographer or for somebody who who um you know, felt the romance of travelling and the lure of exotic places, it was just a perfect thing to do and yeah, so Brazil was I think the ninth series that we did uh, and the last one. Yeah, I was curious why you quit doing them. Television is a very exhausting thing and it, it, it creates a sort of, we created a sort of genre of these travel journeys but then um, I think after a certain point people begin, they become a little predictable and we did um, we did a series called um, Sahara and then we did Himalaya and then we did New Europe, all of which um, were very, very different. But I think Himalaya was probably, to make a bad pun, was the peak of, 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 of all the, the popularity of all the series. After that, I think you just had to find another way of doing it. And, and we'd also seen most of the continents of the world. In fact, every continent I think we'd crossed. So one felt one was in danger of being repetitive. And also the the sheer excitement and wonder of seeing the world, which is a very important part of my contribution to the series, was something, you you know, was was in danger of being, becoming so rather formalized instead of spontaneous and fresh. And I felt, well, if it's not spontaneous and fresh, then it's not going to work so well. But we, we um, I, I did shorter journeys, and I've just recently made a journey, to, well, two years ago now, to North Korea, the BBC have been running a series um, during sort of the COVID 
period, which um, was basically opening up the archives of my travel and having me reading diaries and talking about them and looking back on them. And that series, which has been called Travels of a Lifetime, uh, has so reaffirmed that people really still like the journeys. And um, 20, 20, 30 years on, there's still a big audience for it. So that's one of the, the great things that happened. <laughs> One also reminds us of uh, what it was like to travel at one time. I think there's very much that feeling at the moment of, you know, we never did that. Mind you, I find that a lot. I just watch movies where people are sort of holding hands or hugging or kissing or, you know, armies going <laughs> going at each other. I'm thinking, you can't do that now, you know. <laughs> it's contact. Contact is something it's, that was that was so, you know, that was very, very 20th, 20th, 20th century. But I'm, I'm sure it'll all sort itself out. Anyway, I, I, yeah, I hope we all, we all stay well. Thank you. Same to you. I hope you and your family stay very safe this year. Yeah. Well, we're being good. So far, so good. Do we do what? Do we do what? Do what? Do we do what? Do we do what? Do I feel? back and we were talking about brazil and jeff you were talking about uh terry gilliam being reined in and like i said at the beginning of this episode the story behind the movie brazil and how it was released or not released and then kind of eventually released and snuck out in the meantime i mean that's a whole story unto itself and i think i was more familiar with the story of brazil than i was the movie of brazil just from I wasn't like reading the trade papers or anything, but I just knew that there was this whole history of the movie before I even watched it the first time on VHS. Yeah, and actually what happened is Brazilian in its kind of convoluted idea of the little guy having to try and struggle against the system as represented by Scheinberg. Uh, but yeah, I actually, I, I would love to hear Skiz talk about this, having now rewatched The Love Conquers All just recently um I, i'd love to hear what he has to say the past three nights in a row I, I watched the uh the final cut then the love conquers all cut and then the final cut with the commentary you know the first night knowing that i already love this film i just you know i'm just awestruck thinking you know this film is such a masterpiece and you know and every time i see it i notice new things and i i think of new things that i appreciate it and this time i was thinking how Every single scene sets up the next scene. The attention to detail and the way that they did that, it's like it really, you know, it's a long movie, but it really moves through everything by kind of ending scenes a little earlier than you would think they would end, but setting up exactly what the next scene is that it cuts to. And then I watch that Love Conquers All thing, and I have no idea. <laughs> like, 
if any thought at all was put into that. It doesn't seem like it. I mean, the whole opening, you know, it cuts from the, the, the TV shop minus the explosion to the lunch scene and then the explosion. And we're like, we don't even know who these people are yet that are eating lunch and why there's this explosion. You know, and then just from there on, you know, there's a lot of scenes that are left intact, but then there's a lot of stuff that's like changed. The whole scene in Jack Lent's office with the daughter, that scene had been shot twice because it wasn't working. Well, they used the version that wasn't working. <laughs> <laughs> the one without the daughter, right? Right, exactly. Right, without the daughter. It's not funny. Jack seems really kind of out of character in it. Makes you wonder, like, what were they thinking? And we should probably take a step back, right, and explain that when Gilliam finished it and showed it to the executives, they were not happy. They were not happy with what they were seeing. This is Universal, right? I guess Fox didn't really have a problem with it, but Universal did. I I, I can't remember the, the the politics there, but the basic idea was they saw it. They saw the downer ending. They were convinced that audiences would hate this movie and. Gilliam had a contract that required that he bring the movie in by, I think it was two hours and five minutes or something. I want to say 2.15, and his version was, what, 2.22 or something? Yeah, it was like seven minutes over. That opened the door for them to say, you are in breach of your contract, now we can recut it any way we want. And then that ignited a huge fight between Gilliam and the producer, who I'm now just having that Sid Scheinberg. Thank you, Scheinberg. Sid Scheinberg. And then it seemed to become almost like a pissing match between the two of them um, as to who was going to win with Gilliam taking his fight, ironically, to college campus (laughs) because he had been asked to teach and supposedly he was going to just show clips from the movie and then his rationale was, the entire movie is a clip, so I'm showing the entire movie. And then, of course, he invited critics to come sit in on the class, and that let it get out into the wild where critics supposedly loved it. Meanwhile, Gilliam was going on like a kind of talk show offensive where he is literally holding up pictures of Sid Scheinberg saying, I don't have a problem with the studio. I have a problem with this man who won't release my film. And he took out a full page ad in, was it the LA Times? Um, I think it was Variety. Variety, that was it, saying, um, you know, when are you going to release my movie? And they even got Robert De Niro to go on TV talk shows, which he never liked to do back then, and advocate for the movie. So it was like everybody fighting against the system to try and get Brazil released in Gilliam's vision of what it should have been. And unlike Brazil, the little guy wins. (laughs) He beats the system because Brazil actually, or he sort of wins. It didn't get the full release that it probably should have, but it actually performed reasonably well at the box office, even though it wasn't released into as many theaters as it might have been. And it's like a rare case of an artist actually getting something out the way he wanted it, despite what the studio tried to do. If you're a Brazil fan and you haven't read Jack Matthews' book, The Battle of Brazil, it it spells out the entire thing really well. And and there was a, uh, I guess, late, late 90s reprint that added a chapter. That chapter was, you know, I, I just was browsing the original press and then the repress, the reprint, and noticing that the new chapter really adds a lot more than I ever realized it did. And then they also did like a little documentary version of the book on the uh, Criterion. 
lays it all out pretty well. When I graduated from film school, I went on a, a camping trip and I, I took two books with me. One was Battle of Brazil and the other was the Roger Corman, How I Made a 100 Movies in Hollywood and Never Lost a Dime. And I, I read the Corman book, you know, and I'm, I'm a new graduate from film school and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be a filmmaker. And then I read the Battle of Brazil. I'm like, oh man, like, I'll never, <laughs> what am I going to do? <laughs> I know this is a very unpopular position, but there's a lot of times that Gilliam just comes off like a little baby when he's complaining about Sid Scheinberg. And I'm just like, dude, just fucking suck it up. Cut out seven minutes from your movie and just move on. It just, he just felt like he was so, such a complainer. Like, I understand that's not the popular opinion. And like, yes, it's great. The artist won and stuff. But at other times, I'm just like, you sound like a little. He does sound very aggrieved. <laughs> I'm definitely on Gilliam's side, but you know, there are times where I'm like, well, it's no wonder you have a hard time getting people to fund your movie. <laughs> I love him, but I don't think I'd want to work with him. It would test every ounce of your patience and, and, and goodwill. I did meet him once and he was perfectly nice. Like, you know, I wish I could have just hung out and talked with him for an hour or two. But he seems awesome. He's definitely a guy that he wants to take what's in his head and does not want to compromise that, which I admire as an artist greatly. But also film is collaborative and and that can be a nightmare for people who want to collaborate with you. I think the part that we're so Gilliam fought for his film to be released, you know, the way he wanted. But Scheinberg managed to also kind of find a loophole and create his Love Conquers All version, which takes that two hour and 20 minute movie and makes it what a 93 minute movie that was released on television. Cause that way that was one area he, he got to have his, his end say, which shows how badly his say was <laughs> because that is that movie's an abomination. <laughs> I am so shocked that that is on the Criterion disc. And I'm so glad that it is. I mean, it is a piece of history that needs to be preserved. I'm glad that he's, you know, that Gilliam isn't just like, no, you can never put that anywhere near anything else that I've done. You must eliminate that. I'm, I'm glad that it's not his uh, Star Wars holiday special. You know, it never existed. Nobody ever saw it. Prove, prove him wrong. It's basically his evidence. Right, right, right. <laughs> it's if fantastic. I, why wouldn't you want that? Why wouldn't you want exhibit A of why the artist should be listened to? Because that's what it is. It's basically proof that these people don't know what the fuck they're doing, and they will destroy your film if given the chance. Now, I'm not saying that's the truth, but that's that's his argument. The Love Conquers All date basically is good evidence of that. <laughs> I mean, you made comparisons to Blade Runner before, and there's definitely some comparisons that we can draw here as far as the studio not trusting the director or maybe the director not trusting himself. Well, you know my position there that the director should not, <laughs> in one case, should not have been trusted. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I think I know exactly what you mean as far as like Ridley Scott taking you by the ears and bashing your head into a desk saying, no, Deckard's a replicant. He's a replicant. He's a replicant. And it's just like, Which is the stupidest choice in the world. It's rewriting the meaning of the film. <laughs> like, like the whole point of the film is that a human learns to appreciate and not only appreciate, but fall in love with an android and that the android 
learns to respect human life more than the human did. And if you make Deckard a replicant, then it's two robots realizing nothing. (laughs) Like it literally guts the movie of whatever issue it was talking about. But that original ending of Deckard and Rachel kind of going off into the country where we wouldn't think that there would be a country. You know, I can't remember which one of you guys brought up earlier the idea of like global warming, which now apparently you call climate change because we don't want to actually acknowledge that there's warming going on. But like that shot of them in the truck in Brazil going down the road and you see all those billboards lining the sides, which are completely blocking out the the quote unquote scenery. And then you see see what the scenery is and it's just a wasteland and i can't imagine in the world of blade runner that there is the green place that there is this nice place that they can go to so it's kind of the same thing here when they tack on this ending of yeah and then we go to this beautiful place and i'm gonna wake up sam in the morning and i've got this long beautiful hair and we look up and we see an angel and then that has a horrible dissolve to part of one of the angel dreams the end it's like what what are you doing (laughs) yeah you know my wife um we were watching brazil and she was like how'd they get that wasteland like where'd they shoot that and i was like i said that's a model (laughs) it's a really good model it's only a model speaking of global warming i uh, do you all know about the, the gilliam's original beginning for the film no like he describes again he describes it in the audio commentary but it was supposed to be like in the rainforest, the camera following a beetle. And suddenly there's these giant machines just chopping down everything and turning everything into a pulp. And then this beetle follows a truck full of the pulp into the city where it goes to a paper plant. And, you know, he's flying around watching the pulp turn into paper, which is then like sent to a printer, which is then sent to the, you know, the office where the beetle is the bug on the ceiling that gets splashed and splattered. And falls onto a stack of the paper, and it's a report about saving the rainforests. That would have been pretty fucking awesome. I even love the irony of the fact that the movie was shot in all these abandoned industrial areas. Like, I know that the offices were like in an abandoned Victorian flour mill, and they were actually using the old wooden machinery as part of the props, and that that mill is actually also Shangri-La Towers, where the Buttles live, and that they shot in the power station, and making the cool the abandoned cooling tower, the, the torture room is amazing. But then real life, of course, is equally ironic, because the power station was raised, and in 2006, now sits there the biggest IKEA in the United Kingdom. which i just was like oh my god this is like (laughs) it's amazing to me that that life is literally saying up yep yeah gilliam kind of got it right yeah and those shots in the in the cooling tower are just some of the most fantastic things i've ever seen just the idea that this cramped place where you know you look at sam's apartment and then you look at the room where he's going to be tortured (laughs) <laughs> you know, so the place that you live is the size of a closet. The place where you will torture and die is gigantic, <laughs> right? Where where there's an open sky. And I mean, it's just chilling, absolutely chilling. 
So I was going to try to freak you guys out and say that I preferred the Love Conquers All version, but I can't even bring myself to lie about that. <laughs> well, what I love is if I do wonder, like I was looking at the reviews, um, you know, various people's reviews, because it got some mixed reviews. Like Roger Ebert was not a fan of the movie. Um, he felt it was too overblown and confusing. And Kale had mixed feelings about it. She thought, Visually, it was amazing, but that the the lead character was weak and there was no one to identify with. But my favorite was Rex Reed, always my favorite. (laughs) Oh, God. He always has such a good take on everything. Oh, he's so pathologically wrong about so many things. (laughs) But he called it a tribute to excess and bad taste. And I kept thinking, I bet you he loved the Love Conquered All version. (laughs) I'm convinced Rex Reed... Like was like, now that's the movie that should have been released. It moves so quickly, and it eliminates all those dream sequences. We don't need any of that stuff. And it's upbeat, and everybody, it's it's a wonderful, positive story about overcoming the bureaucracy. Oh, Rex. <laughs> I can't help it, like, uh, having been a critic, and, you know, uh, for so many years, like, when there are those critics you read, and you go, I don't understand how you have a career. I just, I just do not understand. I mean, I understand people who are, you know, I, I understand Armin White, who I think is a troll, but he's a very uh, eloquent troll. Um, but someone like Rex Reed baffles me. I mean, I was just even looking at like the, uh, the breakfast making machines and just like, I was glad that, uh, Gillian pointed out on the director's commentary that, that this was before, I know for sure it was before Pee-wee's uh, playhouse or Pee-wee's, uh, big adventure, but he was pointing out how they kind of lifted that for Back to the Future. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, that does make sense. And I I mean, just those little reactions of Jonathan Price with the wet toast that he has where the coffee machine is spilled all over it and how awful the coffee is. Just like nothing, nothing in this world works right. So the whole idea that you guys were saying before as far as like, Maybe it's just the bureaucracy that is causing these explosions because nothing fucking works right in this world. And also it shows what a good actor like Jonathan Price is terrific. He could do the physical comedy so well, like him trying to take a bite of the toast. was I was like, oh, this is almost like Chevy Chase's kind of physical humor where, you know, where the simple trying to accomplish the simplest thing becomes a challenge. And even the way he's revealed to be hanging on to the front of the truck on the tr- front of Jill's truck. It's I mean, aside from it being very Harold Lloyd in the way it's constructed, Price you know, sells it perfectly. He's such a good actor. There isn't a performance in here that I don't like. I mean, from the from the biggest performance like Price all the way down to the smallest one. I mean, I am curious what other stuff Kim Grice would have brought to the mill. But she's pretty I, bland. I, I mean, Jim Broadbent, Michael Palin is just so fucking amazing in this. And like, I don't think that people appreciate what a good actor Palin can be. And I just really love what he brings to it. The moment right before he's going to torture Jack is he's literally shaking. (laughs) You're getting the sense that this is the first time he's ever had to confront what he actually does for a living. And he's still going to do it. And he he blames Sam. Right. Yeah. (laughs) It really comes through and he's doing it behind a mask. You can't see him. And I was like, 
oh my god, this is yeah. Everybody is so good, and even Catherine Hellman, who's so this weird mix of being maternal and lascivious. Like you get the feeling that like there is that moment where you're like my my wife saw the picture of her on the deputy minister's desk and went, is Sam the deputy minister's kid? And the fact that he could be is really interesting. <laughs> well, that's kind of what brought me to the JH, you know, is Mr. Hultman's first name, Jeremiah. Is he actually Sam's father? I mean, it just seems weird. Like they talk about Sam's father, but Sam never really pursues it. And it just feels like this thread that's hanging out there for some reason. Yeah, we don't know much about the father. And one thing that I just picked up, you know, again, I've seen it every time I've seen the film, but it never sunk in, is that Helpman says something about how he was very close to his father, especially after the bombing, and he points to his legs. And I'm like, oh, he's in a wheelchair because of, a, you know, a supposed terrorist bombing. And I started thinking, you know, is that what killed Sam's father? Except he's saying, I, you know, we became very close after the bombing. So we don't know what happened to Sam's father. Yeah, I love when Helpman is like, I need your help. And you think it's going to be something really important. And then you smash cut to <laughs> Sam holding up Helpman at the urinal. <laughs> <laughs> help me pee. It's like, oh, okay, thanks. We should take a moment to talk about how the studio also hated the title Brazil. And how they didn't understand it. Which is understandable. I mean, it's not a... Um, you, you know, there's a lot of nuance to understanding why Gilliam called it Brazil, but the alternative titles that they came up with that are shockingly bad. <laughs> and they, um, they list them in the battle for Brazil book. Um, but some of the ones that just, just killed me were nude descending bathroom scale daydreams and night tripper. The Ball Bearing Electro Memory Circuit Buster, or New Yak, New Yak, and Other Bestial Places, <laughs> or the more on-the-nose ones, So That's Why the Bourgeoisie Sucks, The Staple Gunner. These are just, like, you sit there and you go, somebody was paid to come up with these terrible, terrible title names as alternatives to Brazil. I mean, at least Brazil has something to do with the film. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, there were a couple that tried. I was telling Mike about there was Lords of the Files and You Show Me Your Dream. But then there are ones like If Osmosis, Who Are You? This one, I have no idea what it means, is Explanata Fortunata is not my real name. I'm convinced like a bunch of marketing guys got really stoned. And just generated a list on purpose so that Brazil would remain the thing. Yeah, I think that title, you know, calling it Brazil, it gets your attention and it makes you think about it. Like, why is it called Brazil? And, you know, if you don't know that song, you might not put it together. It's one of those things that, that I like about the film is there's so many things in here to make you think about it. You know, it, not everything is necessarily obvious, at least not on first viewing. But you know, hopefully after a few decades of watching this thing, you'll figure it all out, which I don't know that I have yet. <laughs> yeah, that song is just so good. And I didn't realize what a standard it was until I went looking for other versions of it and finding like Sinatra had done a cover, Dionne Warwick. I mean, it has been out there for so many years to read the history of the actual song itself 
and that it's been around since 1939 and just kind of keeps on going. And the, and the version that they use in the film is probably one of the best ones, especially with the, those beautiful horns, the whistling and just, uh, you know, how smarmy the singer is. It's also really fascinating and again, ironic how the song and Gilliam's message started to be used by commercials to represent little guys getting their way because they got the right credit card or, and they're playing the Brazil tune and they're showing the little guy triumph. And you're going, wow, this is like creepy that the anti-consumerist, anti-capitalist, anti-bureaucratic film inspired the consumerist capitalistic enterprise to adopt it and use it as a ad slogan or as an ad motif. I mean, don't they remember that Sam is lobotomized at the end of the film? Right. <laughs> but it makes you realize how people become missed terrain and how they remain devoted to these messages, even as their bodies are being pulled to pieces, which is very dark. So maybe we should leave on an upbeat note, which is that Gilliam said that this movie, in his opinion, is optimistic. Yeah, it's a happy ending, he said. Right. <laughs> Sam wins in the end. You know, Sam escapes them. Maybe not physically, but he escapes. And the deputy minister, you know, um, Heltman literally says he got away from us. Gilliam saying that, like, we're slaves. It's a, you know, if we're slaves to technology and systems that waste our time and our resources and our, and drain us of our imagination, that our best rebellion is our imagination. And that sometimes insanity is the only answer. All right, guys, we're going to take another break and we're going to play a preview for next week's show. right we'll be back next week it's kind of a jonathan price double feature we're going to be looking at evita until then i want to thank this week's co-host skiz and jeff jeff what are you working on these days uh just surviving man i've got some projects that um i'm preparing after the new year to um that i'll be pitching at the studios and um but mostly just hunkering down for the holidays spending time with my 
family and, and watching as many movies and reading as many books as I can. And Skiz, what is keeping you busy in Charm City, sir? Uh, I've been working on my latest documentary feature, Sound Mechanic, about the artist Neil Feather and his uh, inventions. He invents new musical instruments out of found mechanical things. Uh, almost ready to have my first rough cut to uh, start showing the people for feedback. And I think I saw recently that Ice Pick to the Moon is now available in Canada. That's right. Yeah, I've uh, you know the DVD came out in January, but I couldn't seem to get it into Canada. You know, the pandemic really kind of hurt shipping into Canada, but it's now there, and uh, so now I'm going to start promoting that DVD and uh, try and get some of these boxes out of my dining room. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.